You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, good morning. Thank you for being with us. I'll say that once again. Good morning, West Wind Church. All right. I just have to pick on the Van Bruggens over here in the corner. You guys seem like a million miles away. What you doing over there? There's lots of room today. Come on down front. Not feeling the love, you know what I mean? So a little bit off track, but how appropriate the uh, testimony of the Sheldahl Life Group, and when you pair it to our children's talk today, faith in action. That's a testimony of, of God's people saying yes to the Lord because there's genuine faith in Christ, right? We're created for good works. And so to the Sheldahl Life Group and so many others who say yes, serving week in and week out, uh, praise the Lord for that. We're continuing our series entitled The Real Jesus. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We've been there for a little over a year, folks. And so I want to invite you to turn to Luke 19. We have a lot of territory to cover this morning, verses 28 through 48. And uh, hopefully, we are going to capture more of the real Jesus, his true identity. Now, one of the things that I look forward to around the Christmas and Easter season, because as a theologian, I'm always curious, what is the word on the street regarding Jesus? And if you're familiar, a lot of the national periodicals, what do they do? They take their cover story, they put a uh, historic photo of Christ, and then they'll ask a question. Who is he? What did he come to do? And, and really, it is very uh, engaging because they do a great job, and we know one thing for sure, because of their marketing strategy, strategy, Jesus still sells. That's a fact. So let me give you a few examples of that. Time Magazine asked uh, this, the search for Jesus. In other words, uh, suggesting people are still searching spiritually, inquiring who he is, what he came to do. Newsweek asked the question, who was Jesus? And of course, when you look at Christ's ministry, he once asked his disciples, hey guys, Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? And word on the street was quite diverse. Life Magazine inquired, who do you say I am? And then my favorite, 2017, National Geographic, the title of the cover story, The Real Jesus. And that's the title of our series. You know, folks, today, if you went to the mall, you took a video camera, you interviewed people, and you said, hey, who's Jesus? What did he came to do? you get a variety of opinions, wouldn't you? There'd be all kinds of ideas. Well, he's a good guy. He's a moral teacher. He's a leader of a dominant religion. Some might suggest, hey, he's just a myth or a legend. I don't even think he was historical. Some of the antagonists might even go a little further and say, you know what, I think he was a little bit tilted, maybe a lunatic of some sorts. But folks, here's the deal. From Genesis to Revelation, Luke 24 has already told us. You can read in Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, and now the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, and the rest of the Gospels. The real Jesus, who he was, what he came to do. What was his identity? 
And today, as we start uh, looking towards Jerusalem, we're looking towards Calvary, the greatest act in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are going to have clarity as to the identity of Jesus. Why? So we can answer the ultimate question, who he was and what he came to do. But equally important, folks, so we can personalize that in our life and have that genuine faith that produces a life of fruitful works. And so today here, those of you who are with us live, could I ask a favor? Take out your Connect card. Uh, Jamie worked so hard to put those together. We always encourage you to take notes. You can't lose, I promise you, when you take notes. Hopefully at home you downloaded the digital guide. And as always, I like to start with the blessing. And the blessing is beautiful from this passage. Because of Luke's clarifying portrait of the real Jesus, each one of us should accept Christ's identity and follow him as Lord. We're going to see that clearly evidence in this passage. His identity, discovering the real Jesus, should lead to the lordship of Christ, true discipleship, true fellowship. And so this morning... Four beautiful portraits, his identity. Number one, Jesus is God's humble servant. And so back to Luke 19, let's start with verse 28 through 33. Here's what Luke wrote. When Jesus said these things, and this is the parable of the minas, we covered that last week, being stewards of God's resources, he went on ahead, notice, here's the destination. Luke has been always driving us towards Jerusalem. Why? Not a pilgrim trip, not a tour. It's all about Calvary. Going up to Jerusalem. As he approached two communities, Bethpage and Bethany, and this is the eastern border of Jerusalem. You may be familiar with Bethany. This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. This is where Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem proper. At the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. Again, the omniscience of Christ, the divinity of Christ being highlighted as they were untying the donkey. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? And folks, this is one of the most remarkable statements in this passage, and I would say in the New Testament. The Lord needs it, they said. Again, I want to highlight verse 31. Take a moment and just ponder what Jesus just said. It is an absolute paradox in Scripture. It's how... Par it's how the kingdom of God is constantly unfolded. It doesn't make sense to the average person. Think about the implications when Jesus says, tell this stranger, this gentleman in Bethpage or Bethany that the Lord needs his donkey. The word Lord in Greek is kurios, and it's used as the absolute divine title for Jesus Christ. You may recall when Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection. Jesus shows up, says, Thomas, check out my wounds. 
You want to put your hand in my side? You remember what happened to Thomas? He bows down and he says this, my Lord, Kurios, and my God. When Thomas made that declaration, he was saying Lord and God are synonymous. So think about the implications here. You want to talk about the humility of God through Jesus Christ being evidence. What's going on? The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, the king of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19, the one who has healed so many throughout the gospel of Luke, the one who is the second person of the Trinity, says to some stranger in a community, I have a need, can I borrow your donkey? Folks, that's just remarkable that God would stoop so low to suggest that I have need of a beast of burden, a donkey, a colt. Now you might say, Keith, what's the big deal about humility? Here's the big deal about humility in the ancient world. Prior to Jesus Christ coming to earth, humility was not a virtue that people valued. They didn't pursue to be humble in a disposition of serving one another. In fact, this was a culture of honor, name recognition, status, position, humility to stoop low like Jesus. Hey, I need to borrow your donkey. God stooping that low, yes. Why? To be an example, folks. He came as a humble servant. You know, during the final hours of Jesus' life preparing for Calvary, and we're going to uh, experience that pretty soon in Luke, he meets with his disciples in the upper room, and he acts as the host and servant he washes the disciples' feet. He takes up a towel with a wash basin. He humbles himself. Peter is aghast. How can you, the Lord, wash our feet? And Jesus said this, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part of me. How did Peter respond? Then wash me from head to toe. Jesus was the humble servant. And folks, we know this for certain. There is a line of demarcation in history when humility went to something that was not valued to something that was valued greatly. And the line of demarcation was the humble servanthood life of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul picked up on that beautiful theme. And he says this to you and me. He says, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ. What is that attitude? who, although Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He became a man. He became a servant. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Think about that. You want to talk about humility in the ancient world. God becomes a baby in a manger. He takes up the towel and wash basin and he serves humanity. He borrows a donkey so he could ride into Jerusalem. But ultimately, he humbled himself at Calvary. He hung there shamed, naked, beaten and bruised. Why? To demonstrate God's service to us. Jesus came to serve and not be served and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the gospel according to Luke. 
And so the implications are far-reaching to the Christian. Think about it. Can I spend a moment and talk a little bit about eldership this morning? 1 Peter chapter 5 is the God-given job description for the elders. And one of the key things that Peter, a fellow elder, says is, I appeal to you, fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God, oversee them. And one of the things he says is, never lord it over. Never rule over like the Gentiles, but serve them. Become humble servants to the community of God. And I just want to say a word of appreciation to our elders this morning. It's been a unique journey these past few years. And in the past year, COVID has really created a little bit of a tilt for ministry. And I've watched these men gather over Zoom and together and pray and serve and try to love our body. I just so appreciate you guys, and I want to say thank you. You know, this past week, real interesting, I threw my back out. And I was hobbling around like a 90-year-old man for a couple days. And one elder got word of that, and twice he called me during the week, Keith, how you doing? How's your back? Praying. You doing all right? That's just the attitude of a servant, humbling, engaging, serving the body of Christ. But then, folks, the implications for us is far-reaching. Think about it. What did Jesus say about servanthood? The greatest here today, right now, sitting here watching online, is the one who serves. Think about it. What a privilege the Sheldahl group had to be representing Christ's humble servant to the community. To pour ourselves out, living a lives of good work because there's genuine faith in Christ. We have a ministry here called the Journey Experience, and if you were watching with us or uh, last week, you heard two testimonies from Walt and Jean Gilbert, from John and Taya DeVries, new, new families to our church. And they took the journey experience, and one of the reasons we put that out, folks, is so you can identify your shape and how your spiritual gifts, hearts, abilities, personality, and experience pairs to the ministry of the local church and beyond, to love our city. Why? God wants you to serve. He wants you to be like Christ. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he says, do as I have done to you. And so identity number one, Jesus is the humble servant. and We have the privilege to follow in his footsteps. Identity number two, let's take a look. Jesus is the peacemaking king. Look at verses 35 through 36, please. Then they brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, and after throwing the robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading the robes on the road. Sounds to me like an ancient red carpet function. Now Luke's description here uses language from the Old Testament to portray this peacemaking king that's coming in the name of the Lord. I want to highlight to you one of the prophetic passages from Zechariah 9.9. If you want to read an Old Testament book, just devotionally to enjoy it in the next few days, read Zechariah. It is so much about the coming king, the Messiah, the Savior. It's beautiful. And one of the core verses is Zechariah 9.9, written about 520 B.C., 500 years before Christ came. Follow along. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. How is your king coming to you? He is righteous, 
victorious. Notice the next word, humble. Kings in the ancient world don't come humbly, but the God king does. And riding on what? A donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. Folks, please don't miss the symbolic language here. If you miss the symbolic language of the donkey, you miss the prophecy, and you miss the beautiful picture of the peacemaking king. Why ride on a donkey? Here's the only reason. Because in the ancient world, when you conquered, how did you come in? You came in on a strong horse, a trained animal that was fast and furious. For 700 years, the nation of Israel lived under the oppression, first of Assyria, under Sennacherib, and then under Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, then under Cyrus, king of Persia, then under Alexander the Great, who said at age 33, he wept, I have no more kings, kingdoms to conquer, and then Caesar Augustus right now reigning in Israel. 700 years of oppression. Do you know what Israel was looking for, folks? Not a king to come riding in on a donkey. They wanted a conquering king. They want a Messiah ben David. Can you imagine Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, or Caesar Augustus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? It just didn't happen. And yet here's the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, stooping low. He mounts up on a donkey. He rides in not as a conquering king, he rides in as a suffering servant to make peace between God and man and self and others. Folks, the peace that God ushers in through Jesus Christ scripturally is called the shalom of God. I hope you understand that one of the greatest gifts in life to you and me through Jesus Christ is God's shalom. What is shalom? The Hebrew word is far-reaching, but it means wholeness. It means completeness. It means that God wants to bless your life and bring the deepest of satisfaction. Shalom means reconciliation with God, reconciliation with self, and reconciliation with others. You want to talk about a gift in life to have vertical reconciliation, reconciliation with self and people in your life? That is the shalom of God. Now, where does that come from? It's a beautiful truth, and I want to highlight Isaiah 26, 3 through 4. The prophet Isaiah wrote, don't miss this, it's so wonderful. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. And so, folks, trusting in Jesus means we give him the rightful place in our life. And what's interesting, again, in Luke, there's a contrast here. And so Jesus is riding in on this donkey, and there's great fanfare. They lay down their clothing. They honor him uh, as king, the humble king, the peacemaking servant. But there's a group in the crowd, the Pharisees, and how did the Pharisees respond? The Pharisees said, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, listen, even if they don't worship me, the rocks will cry out in worship. 
In other words, Jesus welcomed their worship. And folks, when we give Jesus the rightful place in our life, here's what we do. We respond like the disciples did. How did they respond? They honored Jesus by living obedient. They went and got the donkey. They prepared the donkey. They set it on, set Jesus on it, and then they paved the way. We honor Jesus by worshiping him like the disciples do. They honor him, giving him praise. Hail, King of the Jews, who comes in the name of the Lord. What a beautiful picture. The disciples, unlike the Pharisees, gave Jesus his right place in their life and in their heart. And the message of Luke as we're identifying Jesus is this. You and I have a choice, just like the disciples did, just like the Pharisees did, and as we're going to see entering Jerusalem, to say yes to the peacemaking mission of Christ, to honor him for who he is, to worship him and bow down, to give him the rightful place in our lives, in our hearts. And so it begs a question this morning, have you done that? In other words, is Jesus seated on the throne of your life today? Is he your king? Has he purchased you that peace with God, reconciliation with heaven, peace with self, your past, your messes, all your screw-ups, and peace with each other that we can live in harmonious relationships. That is the shalom of God, not a conquering king, a humble, serving, peacemaking king who would stoop so low right into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now third, identity number three, Jesus is a compassionate savior. I love this picture. Look at verse 41. Please don't miss this. As Jesus approached and saw the city of Jerusalem, notice this next phrase, my friends. He wept over it. I want to show you two pictures that come from Jerusalem today. We're on the Mount of Olives right now. We're in the east, and there was a path that existed 2,000 years ago that exists today. You go to Jerusalem today, again, two miles to the east is Bethany. You will literally walk this path down to the Kidron Valley, up into the old city, Jerusalem. Jesus entered what's called the Golden Gates. He went to the Temple Mount, as we're going to see. But today, what you'll do as a pilgrim, you'll walk down that path, and you're going to see this beautiful church, one of my favorite churches in Israel. It's called the Church of the Dominus Flavit, the Church of Tears. Notice the dome, folks. It's shaped in a teardrop to commemorate this beautiful event that Jesus wept. And it begs the question this morning, what broke the heart of our Savior? Why did Jesus weep? We already know from Lazarus when he died, he, he wept over his friend who died. And then he came, and of course, he, he brought life and resurrection here I think it's very simple, and we're going to see in the passage why he wept. He was broken over the hard-heartedness of Israel, of the religious establishment, of the Pharisees who ultimately rejected him. He was bringing redemption. He's offering salvation. He's offering the shalom of God, and they constantly said no. Jesus is known as the weeping prophet in the spirit of Jeremiah, who wept 
for 40 years over Judah's sin, and Judah would not repent, and Babylon came. Now, let's get very specific. In Luke 19, 42 through 44, with his heart broken, notice what Jesus prophesies. And this is hard, folks. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you, surround you, hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in you. Notice the next phrase. Please don't miss this. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Folks, the time of visitation is a biblical term that's used throughout all of Scripture. And what it simply suggests is that God visits his people in salvation, but he also visits in judgment. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God visited them in the garden. Adam and Eve, where are you? What did you do? Why did you eat? In Genesis 12, God enters enemy territory and he visits Abram. Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. All nations on earth are going to be blessed through you. Abram responded to the visitation of God. We've already seen in Luke chapter 4, Jesus visits Nazareth, his hometown. He says, I am the Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. How did they respond? They rejected his visitation, tried to push him off a cliff and kill him. In this passage, there's two responses. The disciples welcomed his visitation and worshipped him as a peacemaking king. And yet the Pharisees, they were so hard-hearted, so opposed to the Messiah, the suffering servant. And Jesus said, God has visited you through the Messiah. You've rejected him. And now judgment is coming. You know, last week we talked about this idea that our view of God really matters. Dear friends, can I appeal to you? Jesus cares. He knows our brokenness. He weeps over the sin. He sees the chaos. He sees the hurt, the pain, the suffering. He sees the divide. He sees the struggles in your life and in mine, and he weeps. His heart is broken. He is a compassionate savior. Matthew 9 talks about Jesus looking out with eyes of compassion. His heart breaks. Why? There's sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd is absolutely lost, bound for destruction. And so Jesus weeps for us. He's broken for us. And he sees your pain this morning. And he wants to break through and become your compassionate savior. He wants to become your peacemaking king and offer God shalom. He wants to model that humble servanthood and transform your life. But it also begs a question for many of us here this morning who know Jesus as a compassionate savior. What breaks your heart today? Sincerely, when was the last time you or I have wept over something or someone's pain or someone's rejection of Messiah, or someone's brokenness, or marriage falling apart, or life being lived in chaos? Do we have the heart of compassion like our Savior and try to reach out as he reached out? Now, finally, in closing, identity number four, Jesus is God's righteous judge. Now, folks, this passage ends in a very challenging way. And yet, we can't take God in slices. 
Yes, he's a beautiful, humble servant. He is a peacemaking king. He's a compassionate savior, but don't miss this. He is absolutely a righteous judge. Verses 45 through 48, stick with me. We're now in Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple complex. He began to throw out those who were selling, and he said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple complex. The chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people, notice what happens. We're looking for a way to destroy him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. There's two judgments in this passage. And the first one, you're probably pretty familiar with. Twice, the Gospel of John chapter 2 and now Luke 19, Jesus' first year of his public ministry cleanses the temple. Now in the final year of his public ministry, cleanses the temple. Matthew says, and I can imagine what this looked like, he literally took a whip cords of leather, <laughs> and he came into the temple, and man, he started kicking butt. Can I use that vernacular? He was frustrated. Why? Here's what we know for sure. God's house, according to Isaiah 65, should be a house of prayer for all the nations. This is Genesis 12. God wants to bless all peoples through the Messiah. And what happened? They made it a flea market, a flea market. Let me show you a picture. This is in uh, uh, early 19th century. It's called the Sheep Gate. And literally, you would, if you went up to, to Jerusalem to worship, you would have to offer sacrifices. And typically, you would bring your own animals, sheep, goats, pigeons, pigeons if you were poor. But you know what the religious establishment did? They said, forget about bringing your own animals. We're going to control this. This has become a local business. Historians estimate the religious establishment made $5 million a year exploiting the worship of God's people as they came up to Jerusalem to worship and offer sacrifices. That's why crisis ticked off. And it's righteous indignation. And folks, because... Jesus is pure, he is absolutely righteous and holy. He can come in and turn over the tables. He can come in with a cord and, and whip up trouble. Why? He wants his father's house to be a house of worship. And foundationally, a house of worship means we're a house of prayer. I want to say thank you again to Westwind Church. I know we've been on a journey. We talk about this a lot, becoming a house of prayer. And I see you leaning in. We've had these weeks of prayer over the past months. It culminated a few weeks ago at the property. We're going to continue to do that all the way through Easter. But husbands and wives, can I ask you a question this morning? I ask this humbly. Are you praying together as couples? Do you look at your own house as a house of prayer? Do you have time with your children where there's dedicated prayer of praise, thanksgiving, and yes, even confession? Using acts as a model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Life groups, are you dedicating significant time to prayer when you gather? Are you broken for what Jesus is broken for? And it, it spills out in prayer. And then leadership, the elders, the staff, are we working hard to make Westwind a house of prayer? Lord, we want to do our best. Why? We want to put first things first. Now, finally, folks, here's the final righteous judgment. And this is hard. 40 years before Titus came into Jerusalem under his father's leadership, Vespasian, 
to destroy the city of Jerusalem, to eradicate a rebellion. Forty years before that incident took place, Jesus prophesied it would happen. I want to show you a model of what the temple looked like in the ancient world. It was one of the great edifices in the ancient world, unrivaled according to Josephus. King Herod the Great spent 46 years building this place of worship. Jesus prophesied around 33 AD, no stone would be left standing, not a one. Go to Israel today, let me show you something. There was an archaeological site in Israel that the archaeologists said, we are going to leave this as a memorial to remember the greatest destruction of 70 AD when Titus, the 10th legion, came in. They besieged the city for 143 days. The people ran out of food and water. Rome took the city, and one of the saddest things in all of history took place. 600,000 Jews died during that siege. The greatest siege, the greatest killing, short of the Holocaust. And Jesus prophesied it would happen 40 years. Folks, that's what broke his heart. Things could have been different. They could have said yes to the humble servant, to the peacemaking king, to the compassionate savior. They could have bowed down like the disciples did and worshiped him as Messiah. But they rejected him. And even in this passage, they pursued a way to kill him, which they ultimately did. And so, it seems harsh, and it's hard to reconcile sometimes that sin has such destructive effects, but that is the biblical narrative. Sin brings death always. But folks, we close with a beautiful picture here because we know in the sovereignty and mystery of God, Christ had to go to Calvary. He was slain from the foundation of the world. And so, yes, in the mystery of the gospel, somehow God took the hard-heartedness of the religious establishment and he turned it for glory and for good, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we close celebrating communion. And if you're at home, I please encourage you to prepare for communion. If you're with us here this morning, we have these nice little prepackaged communion cups. So I want to give you just a moment to take out the cup. And there's two layers here. The first layer, you just kind of peel back, and the wafer will uh, be made evident. So please take the wafer out and, and prepare that. And then you peel back the second layer and that opens up to the juice. And I'm just going to give you a minute. I'm not going to rush through communion. But dear friends, everything in the Gospel of Luke, from Luke chapter 1 right now as we move into chapter 20, has been focused on one thing. Jerusalem. It's been focused on a suffering servant. From chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke, Jesus forecasted his death, burial, and resurrection. What is coming in Jerusalem didn't take Christ by surprise. 
He gave his life a ransom for many. As a humble servant, as a peacemaking king, as a compassionate savior, and as a righteous judge. He was broken. He paid the penalty. He gave his life so we could be forgiven and have that shalom of God in our life. To be made whole, complete, to find complete satisfaction in him, to be reconciled with God, self, and others. So you hold two elements in your hands today. The bread, of course, represents the broken body, intentionally broken on your behalf and mine. The blood represents a new covenant where God would dwell by his spirit within his people. And so today we have the privilege to clarify the real Jesus, to identify who he was and what he came to do. He came to give his life for ransom for many. He came to establish a new covenant. Let's eat and drink together. Join with me in prayer, please. Father, we stand in awe of you. None of this took you by surprise. We stand in awe of our Savior today to have such clarity, to know who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how it impacts our life. What a gift. And so, Father, as a community of faith, we thank you that Christ gave us all. He was humble enough to serve. He didn't come to conquer. He came to give peace, the shalom of God. Thank you, Jesus, for weeping over our brokenness, our shortcomings, and sin. And thank you that you are seated on the throne as the righteous judge. We worship you. And so, Father, to you be the glory for your great plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. We know, Father, you visit us even today. And I pray in Jesus' name that there will be those who will hear from you today, receive your visitation, and come to genuine faith in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.